This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie. Normally I host New Books in Historical Fiction, another podcast channel in the New Books Network. But outside my novel writing life, I am a historian, and perhaps as important for today's interview, a historian with years of recreational ballet class in her past. Which is why I'm switching gears today and interviewing Melissa R. Clapper, the author of Ballet Class, an American History, for New Books in History. As the dance historian Elizabeth Kendall says on the book jacket, This thoughtful and capacious book ends up offering nothing less than a two-century-long social history of American culture itself. And you thought ballet class was just a rite of passage for little girls. And now, please join me in welcoming Melissa R. Clapper. Hi, Melissa. This is a topic dear to my heart, and I look forward to talking with you today. Well, I'm just delighted to be here and to get a chance to talk about my new book, Ballet Class and American History. You are a professor at Rowan University in New Jersey, and you have three books on Jewish women's and children's history. What convinced you to switch gears and write about ballet class in the United States? It's funny. um, I actually don't think about it really as switching gears at all. I'd say I have two scholarly hats that I wear. One is um, American Jewish women's history, and of course, a book about ballet class is not that. However, I also write extensively about the history of childhood and youth in America, and two of my previous books, including one about Jewish girls, are about children. And so for me, writing about ballet class, an experience that so many American children had, was not really so much of a departure at all. It's more that I go back and forth between writing about American Jewish women and writing about children in American history. And so ballet class very much comes from that perspective. It's a history of childhood study. I'm interested in the social history of ballet class more than the um, kind of performative or dance studies aspects, although, of course, I take those into consideration, too. So I, I do get asked this question a lot, but to me, it actually seemed like a kind of natural thing to do. It's an extension of my previous work on the history of childhood. Got it. Um, you yourself took years of ballet class as a child. How did that influence you as you were growing up and later? Well, for our purposes today, the major um, reason, that, way that it influenced me is that, of course, when I was deciding what I wanted to do next for History of Childhood Project, my own personal experience with ballet class had been kind of nudging at the back of my mind for quite a while. You know, I've been thinking about, you know, I had this experience. I took ballet class for 14 years. It was my major extracurricular activity. I was never particularly good, but I got competent in the way that one does when one takes classes and something two or three times a week for a very long time. And I, you know, I just was thinking about the fact that no one had ever written a social history of ballet class before. You know, here's this experience that millions of American children have had, and why has nobody paid any attention to this before? 
I have some thoughts about that, which I can share. But that the fact that I took ballet class myself is part of what made me interested in this. And also, um, a lot of my approach to the history of childhood also comes from the history of education. And in that field, there's been a lot of interest in the past couple of decades. It's not new. But interest in looking at education much more broadly and not just paying attention to what goes on in schools. So to look at alternative or um, extra educational settings like camps, um, you know, children's groups, but extracurricular activities is something that I've become increasingly interested in. And so this combination of interests led me to take my personal experience and turn it into a topic for a book. Um, you know, I, I do open the book with talking about my personal experience, but then I trace the history of ballet class from the late 19th century all the way through today. And, of course, that encompasses far more than my own small 14-year period taking, taking class. So I really came to it, um, the, the topic of the book, yes, out of my personal experience. I do think there are a few other ways in which taking ballet class all those years influenced me. One, and this is something that I know that I share with all those millions of kids who took ballet class, is that I developed a lifelong attachment to ballet. You know, I finished high school a long time ago. That's when I stopped taking class. But ever since then, you know, I read books about ballet. I go to the ballet. I subscribe to my local ballet, which is the Pennsylvania Ballet, a really, you know, top company in the United States. I like movies about ballet. I still read children's books about ballet. Um, it's just something that I've con- had a consistent interest in my entire life as a result of my childhood experiences, and I think that's not uncommon at all. And I think that all the kind of stereotypical things you hear about what ballet class brings to people, grace and poise and discipline, I don't know if I'm so graceful or so poised, but I do have very good posture, <laughs> and I consistently stand in first position. So there are some physical ways in which the practice of taking ballet for all those years just shaped my, my body in ways that I think you know, are, are, can, be, can be seen on me, certainly by anyone who's looking for it. And I do think that the sense of discipline that comes out of ballet and ballet class is also something that, has, that I have carried with me. And so for all these reasons, I was interested not in writing about myself, but in looking at the ways in which my personal experiences kind of encapsulated the experiences of so many other children in the United States. Your book opens after that personal history with an overview of the history of ballet in North America, which was much longer than I expected that it uh, had been. Um, I always thought it started with Pavlova, basically, and it, and yet you, uh, you trace a much uh, longer history for that. Could you summarize it for us? Okay. Yes, yes. So the book is about ballet class rather than the history of ballet as an art form. But of course, it's necessary to understand you know, how ballet developed in the U.S. to get the context for why kids might have started taking ballet class, and adults too, of course. So, I mean, a lo- long story short, ballet until the 20th century was always an import into the United States. People from other countries brought ballet with them into the U.S. And really, the first evidence we have of that is actually French dancers, um, either coming directly from Paris or, in many cases, coming from Haiti. After the Haitian Revolution, when the French were leaving um, what became Haiti in droves, some of those dancers actually came to the United States. They went to places like Charleston, which had a large kind of French double expatriate, you know, first had left France and then had left Haiti. Um, they went to Charleston, and they went to Philadelphia in particular. And so as early as the 1790s and into the early 19th century, there were already some ballet dancers in the United States and some performers. And from there, there were other European dancers who came to the United States throughout the 19th century and performed, some of them to just enormous acclaim. There was an Austrian ballerina named Fanny Elsler who toured the United States with wild success 
um, from 1840 to 1842. She didn't even think she would be that successful, but she was making so much money in the United States, and she was so popular. She influenced hairstyles. People named their children after her. This is probably an apocryphal story, but it looks like Congress might have, you know, canceled a session in D.C. so that all the congressmen could go and see her perform in Washington. Um, she was just wildly successful. And so her tour did so well that other European dancers thought, hmm, maybe I should try my luck. And so there were touring ballet dancers and ballet groups in the United States throughout the 19th century. Some of those people and some of the people who danced with them stayed in the United States and began to teach, not in huge numbers, but that did happen. Even some of the people who became really significant ballet figures um, for the whole history of the art form, not just in the U.S., came to the United States at some point in the mid-19th century. One example of that is, an, is um, Cicchetti, who um, there's a whole t ballet technique named after Cicchetti. He became one of the most important teachers and ballet masters of the late 19th century, and he came with his parents when he was a little boy. He was actually on stage at the opening of the Academy of Music in Philadelphia in 1857, and there, he was not the only one, so that there was some interchange between American audiences and European dancers throughout the 19th century. And then what really made, started to make ballet extraordinarily popular was the beginning of the appearance of various Russian dancers in the early 20th century. You already mentioned Anna Pavlova. She's, of course, probably the most famous ballet name to people who you know, don't know much about ballet. She came to the United States at the first time and then toured between 1910 and 1925. She toured the United States frequently. And she was somebody who set a pattern whereby dancers would not only perform on the huge, obvious stages like the Metropolitan Opera House or the San Francisco Opera House. She also went to small towns and performed in barns, basically in backyard venues, you know, um, I was going to say Rotary Club halls. I don't really know that she did that, but any kind of communal venue so that many, many Americans across the entire United States, not just in big cities, had the opportunity to see ballet, and other Russian dancers followed in her footsteps. In fact, there were so many Russian dancers um, in the United States during the summer of 1911 that the Tsar couldn't have his regular ballet season at his summer palace because all the, all the talent was out of the country. And so Americans, increasingly of all kinds, had access to seeing ballet. And in this very, what I think is a kind of American, can-do kind of way, a lot of them said, huh, I could do that, <laughs> or my children could learn how to do that. Let's not just watch this, let's learn how to do it. And so, there, of course, there had been ballet classes in the United States before that, but it's really with the tours of these Russian dancers that the idea of children taking ballet classes and learning how to do what they and their parents were seeing started to become extremely popular. And so that's a major moment in the history of ballet class in America, the presence of Russian, especially Russian dancers before and just after World War I. That's one of the turning points where you really start to see an explosion of American ballet class being available in lots of different places and not just centered around um, opera ballet schools, for instance. And then uh, George Balanchine and um, it sets up the School of uh, American Ballet and the uh, New York Ballet Company, and he was a major influence. Um, what can you tell us about them as teachers um, and how that influenced the development of ballet class? Okay. Well, one thing to mention is that there's actually, uh, so George Ballantine is a very familiar name for anyone who knows things about ballet in America. It's significant, though, that he set up a school 
school in 1934, the School of American Ballet, as you said, and it was very important to him. He, he, he said famously, but first a school. And in fact, the book about the School of American Ballet is called that, but first a school. He did not think, and it, circumstances certainly proved him correct, that there was, there was yet enough of a population of well-trained dancers in the United States to have a really significant ballet company. And so there was no American kind of started originating ballet company that lasted for quite a while in the United States. Um, he, did, he actually did not start the New York City Ballet until 1948. At that point, there were other ballet companies. The San Francisco Ballet already existed. The American Ballet Theater already existed. But what, what they're taught, these people were operating at a very elite level. And what Balanchine, Balanchine was also operating at an elite level, but what he understood was that in order to get elite dancers, he was going to have to help popularize ballet class for children all over the United States so that there would be a group of, of the, you know, the, the, that could rise to the top, so to speak, which is, of course, what he was interested in. And so he's not, you know, George Balanchine does get, should get a lot of credit for certainly the development of ballet. I mean, he is, you know, a, high, a, a modernist artist of a highest caliber and, you know, really was one of the major genius innovators of modernism in general in, in the arts. But he's not the only one. And I think you know, there, there's, a, there's a little bit of a problem with giving too much credit for the elite people at the top, because that leaves out the hundreds and thousands of ballet teachers who operated storefront studios all over the United States. And most children in America were much more likely to come into contact with those people than they were with the people at the top. And so there's a kind of two-track thing happening in ballet class in America where it becomes popular in a way that is available and accessible to everybody, or at least everybody who can afford to pay for it, which is a significant thing to point out. But those people aren't necessarily connected to what's going on at the most elite level, except in as much as the popularity of going to see the ballet always kind of feeds the interest in having ballet class widely available. Talk about these these um, storefront ballet schools. How how did they get started, and how were they run? Because that's you know teaching ballet and running a ballet studio are quite different things in a way. Well, what's significant about this group of people, the people, the teachers that most um, ballet students would have come into contact with, is that the vast vast majority of them were women. And this is really important because there are some, you know, there's a long-standing history of kind of gender issues, um, to use the contempor- contemporary term for it, within ballet. Whereas the, you know, the famous histor- uh, choreographers, the people who founded ballet schools, the artistic directors of companies, have historically, almost all until quite recently, been men. And this, this, I'm not trying to take away from the importance of people like George Balanchine or earlier people like that, but the vast majority of teachers were women. And this is really significant. This means that in many, many communities all over the United States, there were women professionals who had a very highly specialized talent who were running businesses and offered a kind of professional model just in and of themselves as people, as persons in their community. They were often civic leaders in their local community. They were seen as people who could uh, help shape taste and culture. You know, in small towns in particular, you know, generations of girls and sometimes boys too you know, pass through their doors at least at some point, and so they were really in these influential positions. Now, many of those ballet teachers had limited training themselves. The kind of more responsible among them understood this, but they knew that there was only so much they could do, and if they had what looked like a particularly talented student, they would often pass them on to a somewhat more elite ballet school where those students could get better training. 
But because the vast, vast majority of American children who took ballet never had any interest in becoming professionals, it almost didn't matter as much. It mattered that you got safe training, that you got good training, but it didn't matter for most kids if, the, if their ballet teacher could, you know, kind of get them up to the next level or move them toward professional careers. If they wanted that, they'd probably have to move on anyway. And so you have this just large cohort of teachers around the country. Some of them had been professional dancers themselves, but some of them hadn't. Some of them had degrees in dance education, you know, and some of them didn't. So there was a wide variety of ways in which people became ballet teachers, but their role in the community is significant, and especially the, their ability to function as role models of professional women. Some of them were better entrepreneurs than others, and you can really see this if you look at um, Dance Magazine, for instance, which listed local studios as well as more elite studios, and you can see in the way that they're advertising themselves how sophisticated the ads look, how... Um, you know, the kinds of services that they offer, the way that they ran their schools in terms of tuition, um, structures and things like this, like the nitty-gritty of the business of ballet was something that a lot of these teachers had to learn, but a lot of them learned it very successfully. And in some places, you know, for I, one statistic that I'm remembering now, in a city like Buffalo, which had a large working-class community, in the night, you know, but well-paid workers, people working for businesses like Kodak, for instance, um, there in the 1960s, there were 11 ballet schools in Buffalo. Now, relatively few of those families would even have wanted their children to consider a professional career. But here you have a working class, largely working class, but pretty well-paid community of people who see that there's something in ballet that will benefit their children. It's something they want to give them. And there were teachers you know, of various backgrounds in those schools in Buffalo. Only a few of them had a connection to the really elite schools, like the School of American Ballet, but it didn't matter because that's not how the structure was working. So this is why I think it's important to think about ballet class from the ground up to really look at what the average experience was like, and that's the experience that most of the millions of children who took ballet class had. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Do you have a sense of what made someone who did not have a career as a professional dancer decide to teach ballet class, even if they were not technically skilled? Was it just a response to local demand? Well, I think that, I, I, yes and no. I mean, I do think, I don't think anybody who had never taken a ballet class herself was about to hang out a shingle. I mean, parents were not that dumb and they were paying for something. So, you know, they would have to have some exposure. But there's a, there were growing numbers of dance programs at the college level, particularly after World War II. Well, really only after, with very few exceptions, only after World War II. And so it was possible to get some kind of dance experience that way. There were more and more women who were majoring in physical education, and there was often a dance minor within that, so there was some ability to get dance training that way. There were also lots of young women in particular who grew up taking ballet class themselves, and some of those people then went on to become teachers. There were dance conventions run by dance teacher organizations all over the United States that was possible to get training, especially in the summer, in you know two, three week, four weeks, sometimes even a couple of months institutes. So there were ways in which people could better educate themselves to become better dance teachers. 
And then, of course, there, were also, there was also a group of people who might have wanted to be professional dancers but didn't make it. And that doesn't mean they weren't good enough to be really good teachers. So there's a variety of backgrounds that people could come to. I don't think it was very common for someone to just decide, oh, I'm going to teach ballet. That person probably would not have been able to get much of a clientele. Parents might not have been super educated about what to look for, but they knew to you know, look for some kinds of experience. And the dance magazines and also other um, magazines kind of aimed at family and at parents often offered guidance for what to look for in a good teacher. And they all said, you know, you don't need somebody who was the prima ballerina of some company someplace, but you do need somebody who knows what she's doing and here are some things to look for. So there was guidance available for parents who didn't necessarily know very much. And remember that after a certain point, we're talking about parents, especially the mothers, who themselves had taken ballet class as a kid and had some idea of kind of what to look for and what to look, what not to look for. Um, and that helped, that helped to kind of create an informal quality control. Things really seem to have started to take off after the middle of the century. Um, is that just a natural growth, or were there other factors, you know, the war being over or something like that, that contributed to the explosion of interest in ballet class? Yes, um, I do think there was an explosion after World War II, and that has everything to do with the baby boom. It has everything to do with the rise of a large middle-class um, you know, group in the United States where you have families that can afford to provide extracurricular activities for their children. So there's an explosion of interest in dance, but there's also an explosion of interest in all kinds of extracurricular activities for children and for adolescents following World War II as the baby boom generation is growing up. So you had more science fairs, you had more kids um, playing you know, Little League, you know, any kind of extracurricular activity you can think of. These are families that have more resources and more time than they had, had in the past to provide their children with these experiences. And in fact, having extracurricular activities became a status marker in and of itself. And so ballet class is an important one of these activities, but it's only one of a range of activities that are really growing in the wake of this huge number of children just coming of age and also the rising prosperity of the American middle class and the growth and the expansion of the American middle class following World War II. That's really another turning point. I talked about the early 20th century with the tours of the Russian dancers as one turning point in the expansion of ballet class. And another one is here after World War II where there are more children and there's more resources available to bring new kinds of experiences to those children. You earlier mentioned the gender division within, I guess we could call performance ballet, um, in that choreographers were mostly men and teachers were mostly women. But there are other gender issues in ballet. I mean, part of it comes out of the art itself, um, which is very influenced by the standards of the European courts. But it's also the case that you have all these female teachers and mostly female students um, by the time we're talking about now, after the war. Um, can you talk about that a bit? And then we'll get to the other big elephant in the room, which is the racial disparities in ballet. Yes. So one of the big myths about ballet class is that it's all girls. Right? That ballet is, you know, ballet is for girls, ballet is frilly and pink and feminine, and that in and of itself it's only for girls. Well, Anyone who's ever seen any ballet, let's talk about the Nutcracker, for instance, which is kind of the gateway drug to ballet in the United States. Millions of people see the Nutcracker every year. And they all know there are men in, in the Nutcracker. It's not all women. If there are male professional dancers, that means that there are boys taking ballet class. And that has always been the case. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that there were as many boys as girls in ballet class because that would just be wrong. <laughs> okay, so I'm not, I'm not claiming that there was equity or equality or anything like that in numbers. However... 
it was always the case that there were boys in ballet class, starting in, you know, from the 19th century on. The art of ballet requires both men and women. So just in the very basic, we're training people for this. If we are training people to be professional dancers, we need both men and women on that level. But also, lots of boys have been interested in ballet. The issue is not so much um, whether they were there or not. It's the attitudes around their presence in ballet class. And because ballet was, so, was gendered feminine, at least on the performance level, the people who were performing, the ones who were seen as the ballet dancers were the kind of ballerinas, which I'm not going to go into this now, but that was also a development. That's not the way the ballet was figured from its earliest years. But that meant that boys who wanted to take ballet often faced a lot of challenges. There was a lot of stigma around boys in ballet. They were seen as being effeminate. There was a, you know, this kind of cultural connection out there in American culture that you know, any boy who wanted to take ballet must be gay, um, as if that, you know, at a time where that would, would have been seen as being a very you know, a bad thing and not something you would want to be identified with. Um, and so there's always been a lot of stigma. And the ballet world is aware of this and has always tried to fight that off with a variety of strategies. One of those strategies has always been to kind of position men in ballet as, as very, very masculine. And so the elite ballet companies, like the New York City Ballet and the American Ballet Theater, used to send their most kind of virile, tough, manly-looking dancers to be on the Ed Sullivan Show, for instance. <laughs> the Ed Sullivan Show, this you know, incredibly popular TV show in the 60s and 70s, well, really the late 50s into the 60s and 70s, had a tremendous amount of ballet on it. This meant that the majority of Americans, since so many Americans watched ballet, watched the Ed Sullivan Show, saw ballet pretty regularly on the Ed Sullivan Show. And the big companies really made an effort to send the male dancers that they thought would be able to demonstrate that ballet for men was masculine. Another strategy was to talk about ballet in the terms of it being a sport or being athletic, that ballet required just as much athleticism and strength and skill as any other kind of sport. And there were actually TV specials in the 50s and the 60s that really focused on this. They would take, you know, they would bring in like a boxer like Sugar Ray Leonard and have him on a special with Eddie Valella, a premier male dancer from the New York City Ballet and have them, you know, show that they can, they can do the same things. <laughs> and so there's this kind of defensive posture about expanding the reach of ballet for boys. And it did work. I mean, it worked, you know, slowly but steadily it worked. The numbers of boys in both the elite and regular schools went up. There, are, there were and are still schools that only have girls. There's no question about it. But there's been a really significant growth in the number of boys in ballet class. And there's also been some cultural things that have had an impact on that. I don't know if you remember the movie Billy Elliot. I don't know if you saw this movie. It, was, it came out, I think, around 2001. It's a British movie about a coal miner's son who wants to be a ballet dancer. And, of course, his family and his community are not supportive. Um, spoiler alert, he triumphs in the, in the end. But that movie had a tremendous impact in England that year. The year after that movie came out, for the first time ever, there were more boys and girls auditioning for the Royal Ballet School. And in the United States also, people saw that movie. And, you know, boys who maybe always wanted to get be interested in ballet class now felt that they could and they, there wouldn't be as much stigma attached to it. And the, um, the kind of competition dance shows that are on TV, like So You Think You Can Dance, have also helped with that because it's like any other kind of representation. If you see it, you can be it, to borrow the phrase. And a lot of boys now see dancers on TV or in other cultural arenas and think, you know, if they can do it, I can do it too. And there's, just, there's less stigma. These problems have not all been solved, but there's been improvement. And I think that's, really, that's something that's really significant that has changed over time. And dancers of color also face significant challenges. And I, that means 
primarily African-American, but not entirely that, Latina, Asian, um, other, basically non-white dancers. Yes, so that is, there's, a, I have an, there's an entire chapter about race and ballet in the, in the book, um, and of course it comes up in other chapters as well. This is something really significant. It's unsurprising to find, uh, unfortunate, but unsurprising to find that in the United States there has been very significant racism within the world of ballet class and the professional world of ballet. Um, also not resolved, but it has improved. But what this meant was, well, let me back up for a minute. African-American families in pretty, you know, not, not majority kinds of numbers, but the African-American community as it was becoming, moving more into the middle class, starting in the late 19th century, wanted ballet classes for children. You, in this case, almost at this point, almost always for girls, just for girls. So I found evidence in African-American newspapers during the 1890s of communities everywhere across the United States hiring kind of itinerant ballet teachers to come teach their children. In other words, there was an interest. Ballet was seen as a status marker. And so all kinds of communities were interested in gaining that status for their children by providing ballet classes, even if only temporarily. The problem was that because there was so much discrimination within the existing structures of ballet class and the art of ballet, that it became very difficult for African-American children to get access to ballet class. And so a kind of doubled, segregated system grew up, just like the segregated school systems in the South. And in many cities that had large African-American populations, like Philadelphia or like Washington, D.C., there was a whole network of African-American ballet schools. And these actually offered professional opportunities to African-American women dancers and some men. Um, and so they kind of functioned in the same way, in a, but in a segregated Jim Crow way. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to praise it. I'm just pointing out that that was the only way in which many African-American kids could get access to ballet. Sometimes, particularly talented kids who were at these schools were able to go to the most elite ballet academies. The School of American Ballet, for instance, always admitted African-American students. Not a huge number, but if there was a school, you know, they, if, they, if they saw a very talented dancer from a that was known to them, an African-American segregated ballet school, they would definitely take them. So the people who were en route to trying to have professional careers could get there. The average African-American kid probably ended up in a segregated school. And these existed well into the 1960s, at which point, you know, as various civil rights laws were passed um, and, everything, and things were desegregated slowly, um, the schools became somewhat more integrated. But that's one level at which race plays a role in kind of the experience of ordinary African-American kids who wanted ballet class. But what I do also write about in the book is the way that race just inflects all kinds of issues within the professional world of ballet as well, where it's been very difficult for dancers of color to get jobs, to make progress, to be promoted, and to dance in certain roles. There's been this, I mean, I guess I'm just going to call it a racist aesthetic about ballet that it has to look a certain way, that everybody needs to look the same, that, you know, and in fact, corps de ballet dancers do need to look the same, but not, not physically. They have to be doing the same thing. They have to be in the same position. It doesn't mean that they have to resemble each other, but it hasn't always been seen that way. And so there have been a lot of contentious issues around race in ballet. And I'd say over the past 20 years or so, most major companies and many major schools have initiated diversity programs that are working and are helping, but these are not resolved issues. Um, and that's why when somebody like Misty Copeland, an African-American dancer who was promoted to being a principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater in 2015, it was such a big deal that it was on the front page of the New York Times because she was the first one who had ever reached that position 
at the American Ballet Theater. She was not the first African-American dancer to be a principal dancer in a big company, but it was, it was still so unusual that she made the front page of the New York Times. And there were dancers before her who just never had that opportunity, who ended up dancing in Europe or having their careers curtailed or becoming teachers when they didn't really want to be, when they wanted to be performing and didn't have the opportunity. So this is an example of how ballet connects to larger issues in American culture. Right? America has this history of racism, and it affects everything. And one of the things that it affected was ballet class. We barely had a chance to scrape uh, the surface of this really fantastic book of yours. Um, and there's so many topics that we could cover, and I hope people will seek out the book so that they can see the discussion of university programs and uh, ballet bodies and recitals and all of the other things that you get into. And there's a whole section on ballet and girl culture, um, movies and books and all of this kind of thing. Um, what would you like readers to take away from your book? What is its most important message? Well, there's two things I guess I'd like to focus on here. One is, as I just mentioned, that ballet class is attached, is, is related to, is part of, contributes to, and also reflects many, many elements of American culture. Right? There's, so I mentioned this with racism, but there's other issues as well. Ballet class, for instance, has changed remarkably over the past, few, um, the past couple of decades since the passage of Title IX. Like you wouldn't think ballet class would have anything to do with Title IX, which, of course, is a federal law passed in 1972 that outlawed discrimination um, on the basis of sex in institutions, primarily educational institutions that took federal funding. One of the outcomes of Title IX was the growth of sports for girls, the ability of girls to play soccer and softball and that kind of thing in their schools. Well, that was a problem for the world of dance, not just ballet, but the world of dance, because girls in droves stopped going to ballet class or tap class or jazz class, and instead they went off to play softball and soccer and do things they hadn't been able to do before. And the ballet world, the dance world more generally, fought back by offering dance competitions in a way that had not been available before to regular kids taking classes. So you wouldn't think that this law about gender discrimination would have, anything, would have that much to do with ballet class, but in fact it transformed the whole world, the kind of ecosystem of ballet class. And there's multiple other ways in which ballet class is just attached to larger cultural issues, sometimes reflecting them and sometimes I would say predicting them in interesting ways. Um, I think the development of the kind of princess culture that is now associated with girls, the very frilly, very shiny, sequined, tutu kind of ideas about ballet, you know, which are pervasive and not particularly productive or healthy in some ways, that's another way in which ballet gets attached to other elements of culture. And so girl culture is a place to look for that. But it's also true that ballet class has become is part of popular culture. There are so many children's books about ballet. I have a whole section in one of my chapters that talks about just ballet books for children. At last count on Amazon, there were over 4,500 children's books about ballet, uh, many of which I read when I was a kid, and I really quite enjoyed rereading them for this book. And so there's just all these ways in which ballet class is attached to ideas about children, about you know, how children are supposed to be innocent, but yet they're also knowing about the ways that children are socialized. You know, ballet class is, seen, is an arena for socialization as well, um, about the ways that ballet class is associated with um, performance and the way that people kind of perform their own identities. In all these different ways, ballet class is attached to larger issues. So it's interesting in and of itself, I would argue, and I quite enjoyed the experience of working on a book that looked at so many different aspects of ballet class, but it was also part of American culture and a significant part of American culture, if only because so many American children 
of all different kinds of backgrounds have had some experience with ballet class. And whether they, it's only for a year or two or not, it doesn't even matter. It becomes part of that history of childhood experience for them, and it's something that they take with them. And so it's not surprising to find that ballet class then, and ballet itself then pop up in so many other ways and attached to so many other currents of American culture. And what about you? Do you already have a new project underway? I do. So I have now come to this. I'm now wearing my other scholarly hat. I kind of go back and forth between the history of childhood and, as I said earlier, American Jewish women's history. So my next project um, is going to be, I'm looking at American Jewish women who traveled abroad between the Civil War and World War II, whether they went for educational activities or for, uh, because they were activists in various causes, which was the topic of one of my previous books, or whether they went on what we would now call heritage tours, although those, that, that term was not in use at the time. There was a, a lot of American Jewish women traveled. Um, and not just middle-class and wealthy um, um, Jewish women. You know, probably the, the immigrant women living in tenements on the Lower East Side or Philadelphia South Side did not have the opportunity to travel. But many, many other American Jewish women did. So I'm interested in looking at how they traveled, where they went, what they were doing, and the ways in which their Jewish identity carried with them or not as they moved across all kinds of borders. And I will say there's a, a, there's a kind of fun connection for me because I am finding, as I read their travel diaries and their memoirs and their letters, that many of them, while they were abroad, went to the ballet. <laughs> it was part of what you did when you were abroad. And that's another example of how ballet is actually everywhere once you start to think about it and look for it. It's so tied to ideas about culture and ideas about um, social experience that I'm, now, that, you know, now that I've written this book, I'm even more than before finding ballet is everywhere. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Melissa, and good luck with that new project. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Melissa R. Clapper for New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, about her ballet class and American history. That's it for today. Make sure you stop by the New Books Network site at newbooksnetwork.com where you can find more interviews about history, historical fiction, dance, and many other topics. You can follow this channel on Facebook as NB History and on Twitter at New Books History. And you can find me at www.cplesley.com. Goodbye.